0: Entertainment Weekly's Owen Blackman said This movie is a brutally manipulative revenge fantasy A piece of comic strip demagoguery that teeters uneasily on the brink of satire New York Times critic Karen James observed that this film Turns one man's slide toward madness into a wickedly mischievous entertaining suspense thriller And Hal Hinson of the Washington Post said that Unfortunately, it continues on through an uninspired series of cartoonishly brutal social insults, each one growing more lethal than the next, thereby justifying an increasingly lethal response. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of falling down.
1: re Which one will it be? It's the entire Childhoods Podcast.
0: Greetings, Starfighters.
2: Hey, Dan. I hope that you're not stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic on the hottest day of the year.
0: Oh, well, it is the middle of July. It is indeed the
2: middle of July, our celebration of the film's or
0: some films of Joel Schumacher. Yeah. Well, I would say, I think that the films that we've curated kind of are, I would say, the films that we think best represent his career. Maybe the ones that we're putting up there is saying, and and we talked a little bit last time about Batman. Yeah. I'm going to kind of separate Batman Forever and Batman and Robin yeah. from our schumacher deconstruction here
2: yeah well before we do that all i want to do is just have some uh, fun let you know sorry I, i'm always having fun when i'm recording ruined childhoods shout out to cheryl Crow. uh and,
0: on behalf of scott on behalf of scott scott love scott definitely had a copy of tuesday night music club Oh, okay. Scott's, our, Scott's brother big, Scott. our brother Cheryl Scott, brother Scott, of Scott's Pizza Tours, uh, big Sheryl Crow Past fan. Guest. I yeah. did not know. Okay, he's a two timer. He and Laura, they're the only ones.
2: Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, well, Laura is uh, spoiler alert going to appear as a legal consultant on an upcoming episode. So, oh, that's look true. out for that. Yes, Laura so I uh, uh, well while we're talking a little bit about Batman Forever. I want to, I you know, I have this vivid memory of pulling up to a Sam Goody and there, the, the glass on the outside, you know, the windows were covered in posters advertising the Batman Forever soundtrack, oh, which definitely. is one of those, like, say what you will about the movie Batman Forever, that soundtrack, what like everybody had that soundtrack.
0: I had that soundtrack.
2: Well, yeah, you're. A person a, I who probably was bought it at
0: that Sam Goody.
2: I, you were probably there with me when that happened.
0: When that was that we were probably going so you could go buy that soundtrack. That's probably exactly what happened because that would have been summer 1995. I would have just graduated high school. Yeah, I could tell you the first. You know what? Why not? We're not going to devote an episode yeah, to the Batman sure. movies. So, yeah, we saw. Batman Forever it was like opening night at New Park Cinemas in Roselle Park, ha. New Jersey, where I saw so many things and I remember it was like unclear where there was where the line was okay. and I was there I remember I remember I was with a, with Stephanie, Stephanie Carmel. Okay. Shout out Steph. Steph had a baby recently.
2: Congratulations. 2 months old now. Hometown homie.
0: Yeah. So I remember I was with Steph because like apparently we like accidentally cut into the line and like some guy gave us lip and Steph gave it right back. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So um <laughs>
2: although you were the people at fault, so maybe not nice.
0: I don't know. It's unclear who was at fault because we were also part of a line it was unclear. So Let's put it inconclusive.
2: Uh, They were on the line to get the beer, but you were on the line for the tickets to get the beer. For anybody who's familiar with that very specific David Cross stand-up special.
0: (laughs) I was about... I'm not going to quote it. I'm not going to quote the line that comes next. No, No, no.
2: Google it if you want to know.
0: Okay, so that was your experience going to see Batman Forever. And I... And the... And it was just, I remember looking forward to it. And, oh, sorry, more backstory here, because prior to that, in, I would say, December 1993. Okay. There was a a casting call held in New York City. Okay. It may have been early January. I don't know. I don't remember. The only reason why I'm saying it's around then was because I'm pretty sure we went to go see Wayne's World 2 afterwards. It was me. Dave DeVito, the amazing Dave. Another the, hometown homie. By the way, just to put it out there, if anyone listening has uh, small kids that you're, or maybe not that small kids, but kids who, whether they, you want to have some type of Zoom socially distanced birthday party or gathering, we did it for my daughter for her kindergarten class for their graduation. He does an online... Magic show. Oh yeah, and I swear he gets the kids engaged the way that they would be engaged in person. Wow, it, I mean, yeah, I was really curious to see uh, what it was going to be, and you know, we we watched some videos. I showed Chloe, my six year old, some videos on his website. You know, so she could kind of like, you know, she was into the, she saw a couple of bits and she was like ready for them, but he did things like he, he, kids participated, like the whole like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to give stuff away, but right parts in a traditional magic show for ages. Uh, I think he said he starts around like maybe four or five and goes up to, I don't know, 11. I don't know. I mean, you well, could get you Google could, it however old you want to be google david Cross's stand up and then uh, google amazing dave david Cross's stand up and then another dave the amazing dave who was with me when we went to the the casting call and like tony smith and paul was probably there too paul gancalvis hometown homies and shout out to them all i don't think dave Littman was with us though another hometown homie there was a casting call they were looking to cast a young unknown as <laughs> robin in the upcoming batman sequel And I remember we were all lined up. It was a cold day in Manhattan and we just were lined up around the corner and we were brought into this like auditorium. Joel Schumacher, to the best of my knowledge, was not there, but we did meet Mally Finn, casting director Mally Finn. Okay. Who, if you've watched opening credits to movies that were made at any time in the last, I don't know, 40 years, you've seen her name. So she spoke to us all about how they were looking to cast a young unknown as as Robin. And we all, you know, we all, of course, got our hopes up. I was like, yeah, maybe they're looking for kind of like out of shape, like kind of like <laughs> smart alecky with like a Michael Damian haircut Robin. <laughs> you know, as it turns out, they were not, uh, nor were they looking for an, an unknown.
2: No, they found their unknown when they were watching School Ties.
0: yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Chris O'Donnell was a perfectly fine Robin. They were like, he is the least cowardly of them all. (laughs) He will be our Robin. Yeah. Uh, Stands up for for
2: the good guy. So, very interesting. I had no idea that that happened.
0: So, yeah, so that happened. And I remember buying a bootleg VHS copy of Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Oh, so this, yeah, this definitely would have been later, late 93, early 94. Whenever Wayne's World 2 was in the theater.
2: Yeah, and around the time that Falling Down was in the theaters. Yes. Uh, This would be, this would be later. So this is, I mean, and it's in the second run theaters.
0: I probably could have bought a bootleg VHS of Falling Down. I think if I didn't already, I either taped it off HBO or... Uh, may have, that may have been one that I rented and then hooked up the, uh, the old extra VCR. I think the Ooh. statute of limitations is passed on this <laughs> and, uh, that might've so, been a dub job. Before
2: we get into, uh, falling down, uh, I have a one more thing for the Lost Boys. And I know what you're thinking. We recorded our Lost Boys episode an hour ago, but I have a one more thing. I can tell, see, it's it's always important to watch movies from your childhood, again, every, maybe, let's say, 10 years. Because you definitely look at things differently. Different things stick out to you. You relate to different characters. And sometimes when you're a kid watching The Lost Boys, you might be like, oh, Jamie Gertz, she's cute. But then you watch it several years later and you think... Diane Weist is looking pretty good in this. Am I wrong?
0: No, you're not.
2: Yeah, it's just like, oh, I'm a different person now because I'm I'm like, oh, Diane gr- Weist is I pretty have, cute.
0: I have grown from a Jamie Gertz, from a Jamie Gertz boy to a Diane Weist man. <laughs> <laughs> and I someday mean, I will be a Jessica Tandy gentleman. <laughs>
2: ooh, uh, ooh. Not there yet. Uh, no, Not quite driving Miss Daisy, sir? To no. pour one out Jessica Tandy. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I mean, big Jessica Tandy fan, don't get me wrong, but not in that Diane Weast way. You're not a Tandy man. Not a Tandy man, my friend. Tandy <laughs> man? So, falling down. <laughs> As we talked about a little bit on the last episode, for me, falling down sticks out in the the Joel Schumacher directorial world as a bit of an outlier. And uh, I'm really excited to talk a little bit about ways, because you were saying that, yes and no. and you know, we'll, we're definitely gonna get into that. But this movie has a haze over it there is nothing that is oh you're looking at me like you have something to say
0: well do you know where, where what the source of that haze was the la riots
2: Oh yes. <laughs> the literal
0: the literal haze right. in the movie is from the LA riots which were not happening far like they were shooting the day that the verdict was announced yeah. that the the officers who beat Rodney King were were found not guilty and I mean I production was shut down for part of the time but like they were still shooting not far from where things were going on. And that's, that's true, yeah. That is so when you mention that haze. That's right. There is the there is the literal haze, but the, there is also a figurative haze as well. But go on, go on.
2: No, no, no. I, I do mean the literal haze. It it takes place in on like the super hot day. You're kind of meant to feel uncomfortable. This is a world that is not polished It is not a pristine world, similarly to the way that Joel Schumacher depicts worlds in some of his other movies. Uh, Uh,
0: Santa Carla uh, up the coast.
2: Yeah, definitely lots of gloss on a certain saxophone player named Tim Capello. We might not talk about him anymore on this episode. I'm just saying might not.
0: No, but I I do. But just a heads up, though. I do have. Maybe it's because Lost Boys is still recently on the brain. But I I do have some some connections, including that again we have a depiction of the world of of this coastal California and yeah. the yeah. context of the context of history matters. But I'm sorry, I feel like you were. No, go ahead. No, 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 please. And, and and i I don't want to get too much into it before you you provide your synopsis, yeah, but I think that in looking at falling down more so than than the lost boys, looking at the context of society and and what's happening, i mean including the l a riots, yeah, which are the just which are the it's the the l a riots weren't just a spontaneous no. A spontaneous thing that i mean that was you know that was pressure building pressure building pressure building and then that happened and it was like all bets are off
2: yeah which is a very you know i guess close facsimile to the character of william foster defense yep. in falling down the, the pressure cooker of a human who has let out bursts of his anger throughout the course of his life, and then this is the day when things just go out of
0: hand. I mean, look, when you are stuck in that kind of traffic in Los Angeles, you have one of two options. One is to sing Everybody Hurts yeah. and get out of your car and stand and, and sing Everybody Hurts. The other is to leave your car and say you're going home and walk off through the through the bushes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Really. I mean, if you if your AC is not working and your windows won't roll down, you're left with those two
0: options. Now, hold on. I, I assume you have a synopsis, so I don't want to get too into the into like analyzing the bits and pieces yet. So I'm just okay. gonna kinda So let's get into it.
2: When a frustrated, unhinged man needs to travel across Los Angeles to go see his daughter for her birthday and everything seems to stand in his way, nothing will stop him. The day begins when William, D. Fens, Foster, sits in bumper-to-bumper traffic on the hottest day of the year with no AC. After abandoning his car, he travels from phone booth to phone booth in order to contact his ex-wife, who wants nothing to do with him, to the point that she has a restraining order put out on him. Having recently been fired from his job building missiles for the U.S. military, he is pushed to the brink as he experiences the real world and does not accept the fact that things have changed. A convenience store's prices are too high, the fast food burger doesn't look like it does in the photo, plus they have a hard 11.30 out on breakfast. He can't sit and rest his feet without being accosted by a territorial gang. He meets a Nazi who helps him out, but then thinks that they're on the same side. A rude golfer gives him a hard time, and beyond all that, a plastic surgeon ends up with the giant mansion while he, someone who dedicated his life to protecting his country, gets nothing. Meanwhile, Sergeant Martin Prendergast is on his last day at the LAPD before retiring to move with his wife to Lake Havasu City, Arizona. Prendergast's wife is dramatic, but not without good reason. They lost their two-year-old daughter to SIDS years earlier, causing her to constantly worry about her LAPD husband, resulting in his insistence on sitting behind a desk rather than risking his life in the field. After hearing reports about a busted up convenience store and some gang violence, both involving a man wearing a white shirt and tie and a baseball bat, he is the only one who begins to piece seemingly isolated crimes together. The hunt is on and Foster is on the move, leaving bodies in his wake. Foster finally makes it to his ex wifes house and his motives are questionable. She and their daughter escape to the pier as he arrives and Prendergast is shortly behind along with his partner Torres. Foster ultimately realizes where they ran to and flees the house but not before shooting Torres. Prendergast tracks him down to the pier where he finds Foster, his ex-wife, and their daughter. He de-escalates the situation and they get his gun away from him. Foster knows his fate and tricks Prendergast into killing him. That's, it's really tough to actually synopsize this movie. And there's a lot of things that I've mentioned that are, you know, you can phrase them in in a lot of different ways.
0: Uh, That's the plot. Yeah. It's a lot. And there's so much more to this movie than plot. And what's so not interesting, and it wasn't so, it was interesting, but not surprising was I was looking at at reviews in you know getting getting prepared picking reviews for for the intro yeah and you look at different reviews from different times you look at people who have written about it more recently and you have a piece like um April Wolf uh wrote about it in the uh Phoenix New Times in back in 2017 April Wolf wrote about it And really – and writes about it in the context of today's world of of Fox News and, you know, that white – quote-unquote white fragility. Yeah. And, and you know, looking at this movie as that – like she uh, she writes, falling down is a Los Angeles a long way from La La Land. (laughs) And what she says captures a lot of what – what I saw in the film watching it, you know, yesterday, mm-hmm. and where I haven't seen it in, you know, at least 20 years. It's been a long time since I've watched this movie. Yeah, same here. And I totally have like saw it differently. Yeah. Um, so she writes, it's Defense's mother who. Spells out what the flat-topped, tight-lipped white Avenger can't bring himself to say, that he's a laid-off DOD contractor stiff who was previously, quote, "...defending the country from the communists," unquote. The Cold War had officially ended a year before Falling Down was filmed in Ah. 1991, and defense workers with few transferable skills had been laid off. Elsewhere, unions were declining." The Environmental Protection Act of 1990 was being scapegoated as the culprit of declining dirty energy jobs like coal mining and AOL's 1991 internet rollout into the home computer market signaled a digital age that would leave many stubbornly analog folks behind. Huh. And then she goes on, she talks about how jobs were already going overseas before NAFTA and that women and people of color were negatively affected by these changes a lot more, but then white men for the first time, for the first time in the post-war United States, white men were finding themselves destabilized, not guaranteed a place on top. And some were angry and looking for someone to blame. Yeah. Without knowing a lot of the specifics of history, I was kind of picking up on this. And then she really ties it together. She says, contributing to this feeling of victimization of a country being stolen was the death of the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. So the fairness doctrine, which in 1949 is FCC policy that demanded anyone holding a broadcast license air discussions of controversial issues in a quote honest, equitable, and balanced manner. Huh. So so that goes out the window in '87. Rush Limbaugh goes national, and yep. as she, I'm just going to quote her here instead no, of this makes Rush, a lot of sense. Rush Limbaugh went national in 88 and boomed in 91, sucking American dads into the, his black hole of hate and thinly veiled racism and sexism. Suddenly, white resentment was hugely profitable. In 1976, Travis Bickle was the fringe. In the 90s, <laughs> he was going mainstream. And this is, again, this is a excellent take for for today. Now, if you look at the reviews from the early 90s, OK, most of the positive ones are either like, you know, it's a darkly funny action thriller. So they're kind of like, oh, you missed the point. Or if people saying this is this is dangerous, this is this gets into weird territory and we're not sure what we're supposed to make of it. One of the few critics, I think, that kind of saw it coming. I'm sorry, John. Go ahead. something. You have something to- I was
2: going to say there's no good guy in this movie, even Prendergast isn't a good guy you're rooting for him to catch this guy who's going out on a rampage but like he's not a good cop in the in the eyes of his department I mean we see him doing good police work here but he's also like not a good husband to a partner who is really struggling and he's doing what she wants him to do begrudgingly and ultimately, like, tells her off. And she, like I said in the synopsis, like, she's going through a really difficult time. Her life was changed when their when their child died suddenly. And there's just completely unresolved emotional distress going on. And he's absent in that way. So it's like, he's the good guy, but he's not a good guy. So this is a movie where it's like, no one's really... Good in this, and well, you can look okay. at and you can look at defense also, and we can call him whatever we want. But defense, you know, he looked at himself as the good guy at the very end. He's like, I'm, I'm the bad, bad guy, guy? yeah.
1: How did that happen?
2: Like, he realizes that he's the bad guy, but like, he, his entire life, you know, he's been working for the DOD. You know building missiles or designing missiles or whatever it is exactly and mm-hmm. always looking at himself as the person who is the hero he has what he considers to be the American dream you know he has the wife and the kid and it's like all of that dissolves he says yeah. I, did I did everything they, they told,
0: they told me, to. me did you know I build missiles I helped to protect America.
1: You should be rewarded for that. So they give it to the plastic surgeon. You know, they lied to me.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, the things that he says throughout it, he says uh, when he's in Mr. Lee's grocery towards the beginning, I'm standing, standing up for up my, for my rights. rights as a consumer. Yeah. He he says that a lot. He talks about when Frederick Forrest as the neo-Nazi shop owner yeah says to him, I'm with you, we're We're the same. same." And and not. Foster says, I'm I'm an American. American. You're You're a sick sick asshole. asshole. Mm -hmm. Now we'll come back. I want to come back to that scene. Yeah. But I because I want to stay on this train of thought right now. Here's where I have questions about about the movie. Uh, are the scenes where he is right. I mean Okay, inflation is a thing. So the rise of cost in a soda is frustrating, but I get it. Yes, but then, but like when he actually kind of starts making a point about like like golf courses, right? And and all, I th- all due respect to golfers, but I
2: think that this is where the movie is trying to play with the audience and make you question. Like, I'm supposed to not be liking this guy. Why am I? Th- all of a sudden on his side, you know, uh, this doesn't make, and it's like, why does the plastic surgeon have the the big house when the people who are trying to do good get nothing? And it's just like you, you, it's tricking you into being like, wait, maybe I do agree with what he's saying and what he's doing
0: or tricking or tricking you into showing that, that you, that, these extremist beliefs. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like um, when you kind of get people into, you know, a little bit, a little bit this, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow. Oh, okay. So I've got some crazy views too, or some, some views that could be seen as, as extreme, but coming back to his wife. And I think, I think it's good to discuss a lot of this in, in, in the way it relates to today, because ultimately we're going to talk about its place today and you know, what, what should, what should be, what should happen with it. So I think, I think this is, this is the kind of movie where a lot of that discussion, I think where I think talking about where its place is today. And when you watch it today, what the read on it is. And with what I saw a lot of was viewing it from the lens of white privilege and looking at the inconveniences, and you're talking about you were talking before in the intro about his wind, you know, the windows not opening, and I wondered how much of that was actually was real or how much was in his head. Uh, and it didn't doesn't really matter, ultimately. Yeah. But to, like, there's all these conveniences, the traffic, he's impatient, he's trying to get to to this house. Just
2: real quick, yeah. you just said you know what's in his head. The movie starts out coming out from his mouth the shot opening shot is like <laughs>
0: you are coming out of his head yes yeah so i so the question of how much of this is actually happening i i guess is that a question or i don't know if I thought about it in the that's beginning. A, I think because of that yeah. intro, which though apparently the whole intro is a tribute to Fellini's Fellini, half. Yeah, so I yeah. I
2: think that that's reading too far into it's, it. But it's yeah, I, oh, you know it's worth asking. You know,
0: no, I, I saw it as more of an. It's not like we're talking about Total Recall, where it's like that's a core question about that movie, right. which I can't wait to talk about that some other time. <laughs> yeah, but um, but with falling down. you you notice a lot of this impatience and a lot of this when I don't have my conveniences and for him it's, Oh, I'm, I'm stuck in traffic and it's really hot and this doesn't work and that doesn't work. And I mean, as we learn, there's a whole lot more, but it's inconvenience with, with uh, Prendergast's wife uh, played by Tuesday Weld. Mm -hmm. And, and, And I, I totally, I like the way that you're just talking about her relationship to her husband I definitely see where is like, she definitely has some needs that are not being met and he is being, yeah, he is, he it is seems not like being, she,
2: it seems, I mean, I don't have any type of psychology degree, but it seems like some sort of PTSD
0: situation. Well, what's crazy is he describes it throughout almost the whole movie as, as that it's about her looks and that, well, she yeah. was. A, but that would, but as, and if you look at, her privilege versus the privilege of uh, uh, Sandra, the, the, um, you know, Prendergast's old partner. Torres. Uh, Tor- yeah. 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 Sandra's. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who, by the way, Rachel Ticotin from Total Recall. Yeah. Um, she's great. She, as a, as a Latina woman is, you know, not, has not had that same privilege and mm-hmm. is out working. And then you compare her to Angie, the, the girlfriend of the like the gang members that yeah that uh, Foster you know eventually kills. Um, well, he, I mean, he kills one of them. They kind of one, right. do with well, themselves in by crashing the car. Yeah, after but these the drive-by, these gangsters that he has this this feud with, and you know, you look at her family, you know that she doesn't have that same that same luxury. Whereas, you know, Tuesday Weld was like, that was, she was a, what, a beauty queen. Yeah. And,
2: um, he even makes a comment about how like, you know, they had a kid and she gave up her body.
1: You know, my wife never was cut out for motherhood. She did it all for me. See, went through all that pain, lost a figure all for me.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of that. That's that's that that yeah. I mean, that's kind of where I saw him as being. I'm I'm not going to call him not a good man, but I but definitely flawed.
2: Definitely flawed.
0: Oh, definitely flawed. Because by the way, didn't mention
2: it before, but that's you know Robert Duvall. uh, Oh yeah, and I'd say I'm for me, this is like Robert Duvall in his prime,
0: doing this kind of role. Man, and and I'm sorry, but Duvall can get it. (laughs) in this movie and he's already like I don't know how old he was I think Robert Duvall kind of stalled out at some point in the early 80s he stalled out at around 60 and stayed 60 for like a good 20-25 years like through the apostle yeah no Duvall's I mean it's it's how do you say what is Duvall's prime when you look at the godfather and you look at yeah but I'm not uh, a godfather guy Look at, have you ever seen Tender Mercies? I have not, no. Oh, you guys see Tender Mercies. Yeah. He is so good in that. And I mean, you know, Robert Duvall is one, the paper. He's, you know, yeah, amazing in that. So there's a lot of that, of this like, well, I'm used to getting what I want and I'm not getting it. And I don't know how to handle that. Meanwhile, around me, everybody else is getting what they want. Like the um, the shop owner can charge me 85 cents. And he's talking about um, turning the prices back to 1965. And he's dressed in that. I was
2: just going to say, he's kind of stuck in time. So uh, yeah, he he looks, he presents very like 60s, 1960s, not Robert Duvall, 60s. And uh, yeah, he's definitely just in that mindset where it's like, things are supposed to be, this certain way, we're sold this vision of what things are supposed to be like. the mm-hmm. The burger at the fast food place is supposed to look like this, and it, and it just doesn't. And I uh, I don't know. Like what I do, what I do appreciate about the movie is that it doesn't go, it doesn't do that the entire time. No, it kind of like dips into other issues that he has throughout the the course of the movie. And there are, and like you said, there are the moments where. You just start to like, I don't know, like him a little bit when he's got the like bazooka and the little kid comes up to him and he's like, oh, you're filming a movie. Yeah. Well, let me show you how that works. And here, do this, do this or that. And uh, he's like being nice to the little kid. And I don't know. It's just like, what is with this guy? It's really hard to to pinpoint exactly like how you feel about him.
0: When he's another moment where I wondered what was in his head and what wasn't is when he... He's got the construction worker, and he's like, there's nothing wrong with the road. And the and the construction worker's like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with the road.
2: Yeah, so uh, for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, basically what happens is he comes across a construction site. And everything that happens to him or from him to other people is as he is walking from, like, downtown L.A. or East L.A. to Venice. Yeah. And... It's like the Odyssey. It's far. It's a crazy walk. And he's got, for most of the movie, a hole in his shoe beyond that. So he comes across this construction site and he's trying to just walk in a straight line, essentially, to the house where his daughter lives. And he comes across a construction site and the road is closed. And he's asking the guy there who's trying to redirect traffic, he's like, why is the road closed? And he's just like, well, you know, they're doing this, they're doing that, and nothing is like a real actual answer. And then he's like, well, I'm pretty, what I have to think is that there's a quota, and if you don't use your budget, then you lose it for the next round, and blah, 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 blah. And he like wears the guy down to where he ultimately admits like, you know what, you're right, there's nothing wrong with this road, that was perfectly fine last week.
0: Although it's it's an interesting contrast with his interaction with Mister Lee towards the beginning, mm-hmm. and and I think when he is at the construction site is this is already after yeah this is already after he's been at the Nazi shop he's wearing yeah they call it he's dressed like GI Joe he's wearing like the all black well yeah which, he's he's transformed
2: you well, know he he has the the boots and the you know military regalia you know um he's he's gone into full combat mode.
0: Well, and there is your your connection with like with the, the Lost Boys and the element of uh telling us a lot about a character from their appearance from mm-hmm. his from his stuck in the Cold War nineteen sixties look straight down to that, you know, modern I don't I almost said modern day warrior, uh you know, that, that G.I. Joe look, that or that um weekend warrior. That's the uh that was the term i was looking for but that like he's dressed up like he's going to play paintball like like he's like he's going yeah. to play it's just he's got real guns
2: yeah.
0: yeah so the appearance and and they were and that was intentional to show how he he goes from cuz he's got the the black tie so he's got the he's he's got that mix of of light and dark and then he just goes like full dark and i thought that what was really interesting about his real, his moments of realization. So you brought up one with Frederick Forrest, the neo-Nazi, when he he's like, Hey man, I'm, I'm with you.
2: I'm curious to know if you're going to say what I'm, what I'm thinking, but go ahead.
0: Okay. So, so that's a moment where he kind of, so like he's a, he's initially disgusted, but he's initially like repelled by that. Just as if you had said that Fox news in the early nineties was pushing Nazi propaganda you know, no, no. Yeah. Of course not. And he kills Frederick Forrest after a homoerotic encounter. Yes. Yeah. Well, which which is after Frederick Forrest really like harasses verbally abuses the two guys who are shopping in the store. Right. And then he hides De- uh Foster from uh from Torres, who comes yeah. who comes into the shop. And but then when he's like, oh, I'm and, and like, and and he's cool with it. But it's not like Michael Douglas. It's not like defense doesn't know going into it that this guy's like a neo-Nazi. It's not until this guy says, I'm like you, mm-hmm. that he's like, whoa, you can't say that. It, he's not wrong, though. Yeah. Uh, by the way,
2: uh, defense, D-F-E-N-S, is his license plate. Oh, And yeah. I, it. You know, of course, you can make the connection to the fact that he has gone from somebody who works for the Department of Defense, you know, working for the country to protect the country to going on the offense and you know, looking out for himself and his own self-interest in the in the name of what he believes should be right. So anyway, you were talking about the moments where you identify with him, or at least you see well, his no. perspective.
0: No, not I think, identify with him. it's It's the moments where he begins to see how others see him. And it starts in the back of that shop, and he's so disgust. I mean, he kills the guy. I don't think because he hates what the guy is, but because he hates that the guy totally called him out. And he doesn't hesitate to sit there and use his phone, sit there amongst the like I love the how the like with the cinematography, they, They show you like he's sitting there on the phone calling his ex and there's the Nazi flag behind him and all this Nazi shit all over the place. So he's not uncomfortable being around it. He was uncomfortable with Frederick Forrest calling him. Calling him out. Calling him out. So that's like the first glint. And you you were going to say? No, no, no. Go ahead. Another part where I think he really sees it. And this is so in in that hindsight in retrospect, it's it's such a great move is when he's watching the VHS tape. Oh, um,
2: I was thinking of something else, but go on.
0: So he's watching the VHS tape in his uh, Ex-wife's house, ex's house, of the daughter's old birthdays, and he's seeing him first. He's seeing himself the way he wants to see himself on it. Yeah, where is everyone's happy? And then there's all the stuff where he starts to get angry about the rocking horse yeah. or the get cake. her on the horse, put her on the, the horse, cake because she doesn't want. She's crying and she's like, I don't know, too. Yeah, and and yeah, put her on the put her on the goddamn horse and. He st- you see it in his eyes where he starts to see himself and say, "Oh, yeah. is that how I-? like this is before we had in like social media where we're constantly seeing ourselves on and we're getting comments in real time about about us. This is his first time, i guess really seeing this, and yeah. then again, there's on the pier when he when he he's he sees what's going on. And I'm the bad guy. He says, I'm the, I'm the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, well,
2: so yeah. what I was thinking is, so there's a scene after he is on the golf course where he, what he does is he climbs a fence that has barbed wire on it. And that's where he ends up in the backyard of this, um, plastic surgeon's mansion. And there's this family out sitting by the pool and, it's the pool guy who was given permission to have a barbecue with his family there while the doctor was out of town. And they at first think that he's like a security person who just didn't know that they were given permission to be there. Who's carrying
0: a shotgun?
2: He's carrying a shotgun. So once it's made clear what's going on, you know, he's kind of like he's kind of like taking them hostage and he's just kind of like sitting there with them and listening to the, the guy who's being a, a real like mensch and basically just being like, I will go with you. Like mm-hmm. le- let's, you can leave my family. It's fine. And he's, his defenses are starting to come down. And you don't,
0: I mean, you don't find out his name until it might be like around this point in the movie where it you might find be out his name.
2: Yeah. So you, his defenses are down a little bit and uh, he uh, is holding on to the daughter who's probably like six or so, five or six. And his, he's his
0: daughter's age.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And he's just like, Oh my God, am I, I'm so sorry. Am I hurting you? And then the father's like, Oh no, 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 mm-hmm. that's your blood. And uh, he, it's like reality is starting to present itself to him
0: he kind of sees that he sees the image of, of the real family man. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which is not. And so again, but what's interesting again is we have, as with the lost boys, this theme of the mainstream and what it in, and what the mainstream is and how value and the changing of values Mm -hmm. in society. And whereas the lost boys kind of showed, you know, what's there under the surface um, under the boardwalk, if you will, falling down is showing kind of, I guess, that what else is out there and what's happening to the mainstream as the, you know, the quote unquote other begins to, I always, you know, when you make the pie analogy, just because everybody else is getting a bigger piece of pie does not mean your piece of pie is getting smaller. Yeah it stays the same you they're just getting more than a crumb now
2: <laughs> yeah totally
0: like, their piece of pie still isn't as big as yours you still have the biggest piece of pie it's just not as big yeah
2: so i i just want to talk about one of the things that bothered me about this movie mm. has nothing to do with the themes in it or the writing so much as the fact that the la geography is see, it's just impossible because you constantly see printergast like back at the station and to get and we have to assume that that's near East L like it's in East LA like or downtown LA somewhere just because that's like where the guy from the convenience store goes that's the precinct he goes to and that's like around where the um you know the traffic jam happens because we see Robert Duval sitting in the traffic that same traffic jam that uh d is. In pushes, he the, pushes car the car out of the, out the way yeah. yeah and uh venice is extremely far away and it would take probably on a good day i don't know maybe an hour to get from there one point a to point b in a car we've established that there's a lot of traffic going on we've also established that <laughs> you know he's on foot most of the time but oh. the fact that prent keeps on going back to the station for him
0: to ultimately at the end, get to Venice before things Uh, really go down. It's impossible. I I need to point something out for people listening who, who maybe don't know us as well. So John spent several years living in Los Angeles and knows, and of course, and knows this well, it's the same way when you watch die hard with a vengeance and you've lived in, in Manhattan, you are like, oh, how the fuck is he going to get all the way downtown in time to get that phone call? Take the park. Um, or, yeah, you just take the park. No, or it's more like Howell and Kumar Go to White Castle is more of the one that I watch where I'm like, are you serious? Wait, what? <laughs> but even I, who have never lived in Los Angeles, was like, wait a second. They're trying to stop him from potentially killing his ex and their child and rather than trying to get some closer unit to go, they're trying to, he's good. Yeah. like they're not going to get to Venice in five minutes. Even I knew that. I, it makes no sense. Well, and Foster's driving from Pasadena. That's isn't, doesn't his mother live in Pasadena? Oh yeah, I think you're don't, right. Because they say something about, man, Pasadena to Venice, that's a long way. And it, yeah, it's Yeah, that's not a like crazy he, long way. And don't, and they go to Pasadena. They talk to his, yeah. Lois Smith plays his mother. But yeah, the- Yeah, totally with you on the L.A. geography. Yeah, no,
2: that's just like one thing that that bothered me. Uh, What I thought was interesting about this movie is that, you know, I, I was wondering if it somehow inspired, you know, a lot of the like violent video games like Grand Theft Auto. I mean, this is on foot, but like, you know, you kill the person, then you pick up their weapons and, uh, you know, it's yeah. right. Well, it's like, he goes to the convenience store. Hey, there's a bat here. He takes the bat. He uses the bat to get the gang members. He uh, grabs the, you know, butterfly knife from them, which he eventually uses on. Is that what he uses on?
0: On the Nazi. The Nazi? Yeah. yeah.
2: And then, uh, you know, the, the, the gang does the drive by and they crash and they have a duffel bag filled with guns, takes the duffel bag filled with guns. And yeah, it's, I don't know. Just uh, you wonder where the influence is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I made this strange connection. Sorry. There was a line that all of a sudden made me think of brick. And I wonder huh. if Ryan Johnson, to, it's when when his mother, when Foster's mother finds out that that he's like lost his job. And she says, oh, th- where's he been eating his lunch? And I just think of uh. that line uh that Joseph Gordon Levitt has in Brick where there, like someone like, oh, someone wants to talk to you and he's like, oh, she knows where I eat my lunch and cause it's got <laughs> that like noirish right tone to it. But I thought about like uh, that, is there any there's not really much connection between those characters. So <laughs> oh, man. I, coincidence, I think so. <laughs>
2: yeah. I think so too. Yeah. I uh, and and I always appreciate movies that like take place in one day. I think that that's a really cool storytelling mechanism that, you know, you see all the time. And in a lot of ways, it makes me think of, like, well, you know, how much did this movie maybe influence something like Superbad? Where it's, like, you know, the person's journey and the the, the trials along the yeah. way to get from point A to point B with, like, you know, this ultimate goal at the destination, it's a structure. Yeah,
0: it's it's a really I mean, cool structure. Die Hard takes place in one day,
2: right? Die Hard takes place in one day in the same place. I mean, mostly. Yeah, but like the yeah. you know the take place in one day, but like starting like the the journey. You know
0: that, the paper we talked yeah. about the paper. The paper is yeah. another one that and that I think I think the paper follows a more a more similar structure and super bad. A more a similar structure where it's like okay, you know throughout the we're we're going from morning to you know whenever evening late afternoon, and you know he needs to get from a to b to c to d mm-hmm. you know things need to build over the course of the day, and you have and you also have the pressure of of uh prender prender prendergast's wife, I can't say <laughs> it apparently unless yeah. I say it like that uh his his wife, who's like, who needs his attention, who needs, you know, the, and the, yeah, the, you know what? There's another theme in this movie of what happens when mental illness goes unattended. Yeah. Yeah. And what, yeah. When it's, when, when trauma is not addressed, because clearly Foster, like, I don't think it was just when he lost, it clearly wasn't just when he lost his job. Cause like, you know, he had those anger issues and all of that, you know, Going back a long way, it seems. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And just to go along with kind of what we do on this podcast, talking about, you know, how this movie we brought back, I'm not suggesting that there be a prequel, but I would be curious to know what, you know, we get a glimpse of his mother, but, you know, what his life was like growing up. I, you know, and it's like
0: young defense.
2: Right. You wouldn't want a. A full prequel about that. but like, if there was a remake, but like getting a little bit more into seeing what that was like,
0: would it so like a young Sheldon kind of deal? Exactly like young Sheldon. Yeah, it's so funny because I took a similar route, though, oh that wasn't going... my idea. Oh, oh, oh no no no, oh. my idea was actually a stage
2: play. I thought that it would, you know, even though it's a lot of different like locations which makes stage plays a little tricky. Not really. Eh, yeah, I look, I'm
0: not as I'm not a theater person the way that you are. But John, like um take I have directed my most recent directorial job, A Few Good Men had many settings from Washington DC to Cuba.
2: Oh Dan, next next drama you direct, falling down. Well, I mean <laughs> with, I could it, with kids. It, oh, <laughs> That would be you like that would be like in uh, Rushmore, all the uh the plays that he directs where it's like little kids doing very like adult things.
0: I've I've thought about doing it. One of the things I I, I did once and uh, anyone who grew up uh around the same time we did in the same area we did will will understand this. But one adaptation that I wanted to do is Glengarry Glenn Ross, the channel eleven edition. <laughs> and wow, we've talked about channel eleven a couple episodes ago, I think. We we have like I have a P-I-X. copy of Yeah. I have a copy of of the script and I was and I was just like, oh, man, wouldn't it be fun to do like just take out all the profanity and just switch it out for the most ridiculous shit and the most ridiculous malarkey? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that it
2: would be really cool to do this as a stage play, though. Well, there you could really examine the
0: whole like psychological aspect. Exactly. You could really get inside his mind. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I could see a lot being done with projections. That's an interesting project to take on. Yeah, I don't think I could do it at the high school. But with social distancing also, I think it's one that could be done easily, especially if you take it from the a lot of this is in his head approach.
2: Defense would not be wearing a mask right now.
0: No, no, no. It's my right to breathe, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Come on. We didn't have to wear masks in the 1960s. Do you have any th- anything else to say? I mean, I-, I could go into... there. We could go all day on oh. Falling Down.
2: Uh, one, other yeah. thing that, one other thing I wanted to bring up is something that I didn't love about this movie is that I can think of at least two times when the song uh, London Bridges comes up. You know, uh, Prendergrass, like, sings it on the phone with his wife, and then I believe that that's the song on the, like um, snow globe.
0: Uh, yet I, yeah. also gives the title of it, the movie. right, its And it's title. like, I love the movie's title, you know, it, there's a lot of like men, like when he's in the back with the neo-Nazi and he's leaning on the counter and he's like, give me your hand. And he's like, no, I'll fall down. Right.
2: Yes. So
0: is it just, yeah. just kind of like the over, is it just I, like, uh, well, you know, I just don't, do that that's
2: one thing that I just couldn't figure out is like, what is the significance of this song and this story? And, uh, I thought that it, I don't know, took up too much of my brain space for some for a movie that took up a lot more of my brain space for a lot more valuable things. Oh yeah, I agree. I
0: yeah, I didn't even really like. I think I know. I There's like a, a London Bridge it.
2: poster at some point. I don't yeah, know. well, they talk
0: about moving London Bridge to Arizona. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I yeah, no, I agree with you. Like, I didn't really dedicate a lot of headspace. That said, if
2: that's the reason why the movie called falling down, it's fine by me. Cause it's a great title for the movie.
0: Oh yeah. No. Um, I will say though, in terms of music though, there was this one point where I felt the score was, was like, was just a little too mm-hmm. much. And it was, it was towards, it was towards the end when, um, when Foster is on the run, when he's running.
2: The one block from I the uh, house to the pier.
0: Yeah. And there's just like, there's like action movie music. And I was just like, I'm like, "Ah, I don't know if this is the music I want right now for this, especially, but I think a lot of that is, is hindsight. And a lot of that, that's why when you look at reviews and essays written about the film, there's a lot more like people writing about it now are pointing this out and saying like, Oh boy, this movie kind of called out a lot of things long before they were getting called out in the mainstream media.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Credit to Michael Douglas for nailing the character. And I think that, I mean, I read somewhere that like the movie really wouldn't have been made had he not been part of it. No,
0: I was just going to say that. No, it was, it got shot down by every studio. And then he got the script and was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. This is like his favorite of his performances.
2: Yeah. And I don't think I disagree. I mean, I don't know if it's my
0: favorite Michael Douglas movie. I think the game might be my favorite Michael Douglas movie. I Michael Douglas is great. And it's really hard. To, there's almost a Michael Douglas movie for every occasion Cause you're right. He's got your the the erotic thrillers of the early to mid '90s, yeah. like Basic Instinct and Disclosure. Yeah. And he's got the uh, romantic adventure comedy. Romantic yeah, scope. which I don't
2: love him in. I've talked now, about this before. He it doesn't a, feel
0: right to me. That it's he's- an Indiana Jones carbon copy, but. Well, not a carbon copy yeah going to say like that was running out of toner he's an Alan Quatermain uh carbon copy yeah war War of the Roses right mm-hmm. Wall Street um yeah Wall Street he's great in traffic I mean like you could go on and on with great fatal attraction mm-hmm. uh you know great great Michael Douglas performances but yeah this is one I think that I think has has aged well in that we've seen the evolution of 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 this character mm-hmm. in real life. Yeah, we sure have. Like you said, he would not be wearing a mask. Certainly not. No. Probably a red cap.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. Had he not gone completely off the rails. You know, if so he off the pier, off the pier, very much so,
0: went overboard. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, Oh, but that scene. I'm sorry. But oh, but yeah, that scene. And like, there's even that moment where Duval's like, don't you want to see your daughter grow up? And he's like, from behind bars, no. Yeah. You shoot me and she'll get the insurance money. Yeah. And yeah. there's that moment where they see. I've, I, I watched when I saw this movie, I saw them as like almost two sides of the same coin.
2: Right, two guys. Well, who... they and they draw this parallel when he's talking about doing like a one-two-three shootout, where it's
0: like it's a western, and you know, it's a kid who hasn't grown up from the nineteen sixties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Glorifying westerns. Yeah. yeah, he's got. He's he looks like and and it would be interesting, I guess, to like you were talking about a prequel where maybe you would see him as a child in the sixties.
2: Right. Which you could also do if you're doing a stage play and you kind of go into his head a little bit and see him in the past, you know, but it would be interesting. Like watching a cowboy movie and turning it up while his parents are yelling at each other or fighting or whatever.
0: I think it would be fascinating. What if his father, um, you know, was killed in Vietnam and that kind of, and first of all, you have the kid who gets stuck in this like arrested development where it's like, I want to, I'm going to stay stuck in this moment in time until I can fix it. And that's Mm -hmm. his whole work where, you know, he's saying he's in defense, but is he really just kind of waiting for when we can launch those missiles against, against the communists? Mm -hmm.
2: No, it's really interesting. And uh, seeing him at the end where he is just like, he wants Predogast to kill him. You know, he's realized that he's the bad guy. He can see things from, you know, a different perspective. He understands that he has no more life. He he is a relic. He is done. And, you know, he doesn't... He shouldn't be there anymore. And it is better for his family if he is dead, not just for insurance money, but because his wife fucking hates him, or his ex-wife. And, you know, it, he's only been causing her you know, a lot of grief since they were together.
0: And I wonder if that was in the original draft. I wonder, because he does get this sympathetic ending where this decision is motivated by his his daughter's welfare. And I have to wonder if that was something originally in there or if they were like, we can't kill Michael Douglas without making him at least a little bit likable and the whataburger scene isn't going to do it
2: yeah whatever that burger place was
0: yeah it's it's funny when i saw when i watched that scene where he kind of goes off on because you kind of identify with him about the whole like the picture in the ad yeah although it's interesting because then there's the other parallel between the ad and the the reality of the store that the nazi makes
2: oh what does he say about
0: He's like, when you, well, on, on TV, you walk in and it's every, it's all nice oh, and everything in yeah. the And then you walk in, there's a, he drops a few end bombs. Yeah.
1: On TV, it's always nice looking white kids. But when you go in there, it's nothing the but a bunch of fucking niggers. And they'll spit on your food if you're not nice to them. I know. I know all about it. I'm with you.
0: So it's interesting, the two parallels between what you see on TV and what you get and where where Michael Douglas is concerned is kind of the inconvenience of, well, I wanted the big thick burger and I got this. But I was watching that scene, where I was going was I was watching that scene much more from the perspective of the casual diner. Oh yeah. The bystander. Whereas the kid who raises his
2: hand when he's like, what's wrong with this picture?
0: Yeah um you know that or or the the woman who throws up because he's oh, he yeah. accidentally shoots the gun yeah <laughs> and has the gun aimed at her so i'm seeing like in this in this day and age where we are much more aware of gun violence and things like that actually happening i watch it much more from the perspective of oh my god i'd be so scared mm-hmm. and i you know i've I've now imagined what would happen in those circumstances. Whereas watching this, you know, back in 1993, it, it was more of that. Yeah, that's right. No, man, fast food burgers never look as good as they do on the ads. And I hate when I can't get breakfast past 1130.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, things change when you watch movies at different stages in your life. Sometimes you are a Jamie Gertz fan. Sometimes you're a Diane Weist fan. It all changes throughout time. And right now, especially in this time, we think about things from the perspective of people who could encounter somebody walking into a place with a gun. You know, we are living in a world where that is more real. And this, from the two of us, you know, people who are, you know, we're two white kids living in suburban New Jersey... This type of thing could have never happened, uh, you know, in but, our minds. And,
0: and that's where I think a lot of the critics at the time, Roger Ebert being one of the major exceptions. Oh, yeah? I read Roger Ebert's review and Roger Ebert was definitely like thinking forward yeah. with this movie. But I think a lot of critics wrote it off as being too absurd. And it's this like revenge is like Sam Peckinpah wannabe, to be revenge fantasy and oh you're supposed to like this guy and watching it now with not just more maturity and you know being you know as as you put it more in the Weist range than yeah. the gertz range you see it in a much more in a much different light as as some as more of a i don't know an omen a warning a foreshadowing and looking at this film and i mean i don't it's it's impressive to me that someone like roger ebert kind of called it and it doesn't make a big splash in 1993. It's not a big moneymaker. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get nominated for Oscars.
2: That surprises me a little bit. I don't well, believe Well, what else is a... going
0: on that year? In 1993? Yeah, what were the big ones that year? What's Love Got to Do With It. Okay. The Piano was 1993. Schindler's List, The Fugitive. Okay. So, but, hmm,
2: okay. Yeah. Yeah. I Right. I, it seems like this one could have had a chance to, to make it, I, I think Oscar worthy,
0: but like people weren't ready for it maybe. And yeah, well, that hurt. And it. and yeah. And I, I also don't think, I think uh, like we talked about uh, on the, the last episode, Joel Schumacher was one of those directors who wasn't seen as a, a quote unquote uh, Oscar, Oscar bait director. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was, you know, making, you know, he's he's the, the, like, all right, we need a summer blockbuster. Who are you going to call? <laughs> you know, so, yeah. So Ivan Reitman, busy. Richard Donner, busy. Joel Schumacher. Uh, you know, not necessarily in that order, but that sure. was. So I, I think that a movie like this, I mean, if you make this movie nowadays, well, look at uh, Bobcat Goldthwait's God Bless America, which in yeah. many ways. Very is, similar. Is the what 2010s version
2: right with the more relatable, I uh, you know protagonist? The
0: yeah, uh, yeah. His his. I mean, it's a very. It's like a really. I haven't watched it recently, but I remember it being pretty pretty graphic. Uh, but I thought it was. I thought it was brilliant. And
2: yeah. yeah, one one thing that we didn't talk about with falling down or haven't gotten to yet is one person who he encounters but has no interactions with. And that is the guy who's protesting outside the bank because they said that he was not financially viable. Not economically viable. Not economically viable. Seven
1: years I banked you know, him. told me to ask for a loan? A small loan. He told me that I was not economically viable. And Yeah, I banked him for seven years. Seven years. Sir, excuse me. How'd your loan work got? Did they give you a loan? He must be economically viable. There's a man with a smile on his face. He looks like a happy customer. That's what an economically viable person looks like. Oh, how
2: look and yeah. uh, who ultimately gets arrested? And it's like mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing that is so uh, relevant today
0: i yeah, I'm glad you brought that up,
2: and it's one of those things that just happens in the movie. It doesn't happen to him. he doesn't happen to it, but it's something that he comes across. You know what though it's it's so fucking fascinating because well, this happens while he is buying a present birthday present for his daughter,
0: yeah, yeah, which he has a positive interaction with that shopkeeper because whatever he wants is right there in front of him and he can get it very easily. This and is a movie where, yeah, the and price is he, totally fine. Exactly. So when he sees this guy and the, and the guy drives and the, and the guy just gets arrested for demonstrating, he's got a sign, um, you know, not economically viable. And, When he drives past or when he, well, not he drives past, the cops drive past and -hmm. he's in the back of the car and, and, and he's like, you know, don't forget about me, man, or something like that. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 And then, and then that's what he's saying on the pier is that he's not economically viable anymore. Foster. You know, I didn't piece that together. It just,
2: I, I could, I knew that there was some sort of like influence Coming from him into into Foster, and it was such an interesting scene to me because that's a moment where Foster isn't involved in somebody else's murder or
0: terror. Mm-hmm. So it's no, uh, but he yeah. is that guy. he could be that guy, but that yeah. guy is in a much is in a worse position because that guy didn't have a defense job. That guy didn't have like that guy was in much worse circumstances than Foster, who's you know, who's, you know, whining and moaning. We talked about, you know, white privilege and white fragility. Mm-hmm. And then he's seeing like, oh, it could be worse. I could be that guy, which at the end, he kind of has that that option.
2: Yeah. Now, it's it's interesting to me, and I know that we, it's almost time to wrap up, but uh, th- he has a lot of these encounters that are pretty positive that are all with black people. You know, he had like that is, I'd say for him, like a moment of realization. And, you know, that demonstrator is a black person when he's at the burger joint and he uh, like says, you know, what about the like, what can you tell me that like, what's wrong with this picture? It's like the little black kid that raises his hand when he's got the bazooka and he's like trying to figure out how to make it work. It's this like little black kid who comes up to him and like shows him how to use it. So I find it very interesting that it's.
0: They're all helping him. They're all yeah, serving him.
2: They're all helping him.
0: They're all assisting him. That's he's having positive interactions with them because they're helping him. Yeah, that's true. They're they're working for him.
2: <laughs> I never thought about it that way.
0: <laughs> Make America great again. Right. Oh, boy. Yeah. Anyway. So. so um, anyway. So yeah. So we talked a little bit about our uh, about a person like a hypothetical prequel idea, which is worth exploring. But you said that wasn't, but you, and you said stage play. Yeah. That could
2: include elements of his past.
0: Which I think would be, I I think fascinating, kind of add the prequel element into the stage play and, and, you know, get into the more of the psychology. So kind of adapting it, not trying to do the movie on stage.
2: Right. No, 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 no.
0: Adapting it.
2: Kind of folding the backstory into it more to help give the context because,
0: Yeah, that'd be really, you know, it's another movie from around the same time that would be really interesting to do that with a movie directed by Peter Weir called Fearless. Um, Which one is that? Where Jeff Bridges is. Jeff Bridges, right. He survives the plane crash and then just like has no fears whatsoever. That would be really interesting because that's very psychological, too.
2: Now you're talking about plane crash movies. I want to do Hero.
0: Oh, boy. Oh, (laughs) wow. Yeah, that's a, that's kind of an unsung gem, hero. So okay, noted, noted. noted. <laughs> um, but back to, back to falling down. So where I saw things going was flash forward to you know present day to Foster's daughter, mm. and who has you know been it's dealing. In DNA. It's in her DNA, and she has dealt with kind of the the trauma. And because she doesn't know right away what's happened. She's had her birthday party. But now, you know, I see it more of like a psychological drama where she's in counseling and she's like, I feel these urges. And it's. I don't think it needs to be social commentary. I, I don't think it needs. I think it can just be more of a person struggling with their inner demons. I, I And it could be about like being in social situations and, you know, which, of course, we're not in right now. So I guess this would take place in a hopefully post COVID world that looks yeah. like the pre COVID world. We can
2: just assume that that's what we're imagining.
0: Yeah. But like, imagine where like, you know, she's at the supermarket and something's taking a really long time. Like the, the cashier is taking a really long time because the woman's, you know, it's, um, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the woman's got all these coupons or whoever's in front of the who is not not she not the the, Are, the daughter is this an uh, an inner Interspace? space yeah that's kind of what I was picturing <laughs> but like imagine she's like behind her and like she really starts to like you know you see that she like is shaking or that she has these violent fantasies and that she's trying to negotiate that she like she knows about her father and mm-hmm. she remembers and she can have that call back and maybe she has these nightmares where she is where she is her father on that day and where she's heard all the stories of what's happened to him. So she has nightmares where she's the one in Lee's grocery. Well, she's probably got PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and before we go, we go though, I do, speaking of that, that last scene on the pier, I need to give a shout out to the unsung hero of that scene who. I wish it was Tim Capella, but it's not Tim Capella, uh, saxophonist extraordinaire from the Lost Boys. Uh-huh. Uh, it, so in that where you have the crowd gathered on the right, there is a dude standing on the pier with this like long feathered, like ultimate warrior style hair. Um, oh, and he's the is hot it, pink thong. He's wearing like a hot pink thong. Is
2: this on the pier itself or as Pendergrass is like running onto the pier? Oh, because I noticed a lot of interesting characters who are like at the edge
0: of the It's where the cops, the cops have it blocked off. Yeah. yeah. Where the yeah, cops yeah. have it blocked. Oh, he's I noticed standing those like people. right on the right side. And he's wearing nothing else, but he's got this hot pink thong and this feather, like, like he's in a, like a hair metal video or yeah. like I said, Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to share that on Instagram. There's a whole lot of Instagram that needs to happen. But yeah. Oh, and I was thinking I was like Aubrey Plaza as the daughter. Yeah, huh. as Adele. Yeah, Aubrey, I really She'd be great because I think she's got that dramatic performance, and I didn't see the the remake of *Child's Play*, but
2: no, uh, no but uh, yeah, I think she's great.
0: That'd I be mean, awesome. among other great actresses, but she was like the first who came to mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and by the way, we haven't mentioned her yet, but shout out to Barbara Hershey, who gives a fantastic performance as as Foster's ex wife uh, yeah. Elizabeth. She's very good. So there's a scene where she's talking about talking to the cop about him, and the cop is like, "Well, did he ever actually hit you?" And she's yeah. like, "And you've I felt for her so much in that scene."
2: Oh, Man. absolutely, yeah. So uh, throughout the course of the movie, she has a patrol car there because she's afraid that he's going to show up, and they have this rule where it's like they can't send somebody out more than like three times on the same day, and uh, of course. They use up the three times. And yeah, she says, like, has he, did he ever actually act on anything? And it's like, that is why all of this stuff keeps on happening is because believe people have to believe the victim. People believe need to have victim. the evidence, the physical evidence, or, you know, there needs to be something physical that happens. She should have and, shown
0: him that tape with the rocking horse and been yeah. like, watch this and you tell me I didn't do the right thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Now, if only our. Uh, did we talk about, no, this is the last episode we talked about our summer of 87 home video. If only like in the background of one of the shots on like the pier, there was, you know, Michael Douglas and his family. And I'm like
0: shouting about a rocking horse. <laughs> <laughs> I, is there video from, when, I remember we did go to Venice.
2: Yeah. Now I have to watch it back and see if there's a, uh, anybody who looks like Michael Douglas. Well, that, <laughs> that would have been
0: yeah, no. That would have also been in a fictional world and uh would have been a few years too I'm, early.
2: That's that's well, let's see, eighty seven. That would have probably been around the same because if we're talking about what like her second birthday and if
0: she's turning what, like six or so? Oh, 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 I'm sorry. You know what? I was thinking of the end. Oh no, no, no. no, no. no, no I yeah, was yeah, talking yeah. about oh. his home video. <laughs> oh, yeah, with the, with the ice cream and or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Got uh it.
2: anyway, 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 anyway.
0: Now I'm with you. So yeah. well,
2: why don't we well, talk about uh what we're gonna do in our next episode?
0: So we are july as we continue through july we uh we we revisit Joel Schumacher's frequent collaborator, Kiefer Sutherland, yeah, taking Kiefer. the lead in
2: Kiefer, Kiefer! Uh, that was the last but, episode that we talked about. That.
0: But speaking of just and one of those qualities of Joel Schumacher movies that this movie bucks that trend. This is where this movie, where Falling Down is an outlier, yeah. is that the um exploration of youth and and um really taking the perspective of young people in this and in in our next episode, medical students yeah. experimenting with life and death. So it is Kiefer Sutherland. Julia Roberts, Kevin Bacon, William Baldwin, Oliver Platt, and right, oh, Oliver Platt, Oliver, like early Oliver, early Oliver Platt, uh, in Joel Schumacher's 1990 hit, Flatliner.
2: I'm excited.
0: I almost said Flatliner like it was one Flatliners. Yeah, so Flatliners, uh, plural. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Meanwhile, let us know what what your yeah. Joel Schumacher favorites are what well like what maybe you're a Phantom of the Opera fan. Maybe maybe you love the number twenty three. Those are movies that we're probably not gonna talk about as much. Right. Yeah. So uh, email us at ruinedchildhoodspod at gmail dot com. Follow us on Instagram at ruinedchildhoodspod. Yeah. And yeah, John, any any final Yeah, as you're
2: going from East LA to Venice on foot, I wish you a good journey.
0: Yes, good journey.